tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the known. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Okay, so uh, welcome to the uh, very first installment of Beer with BMSIS. Uh, it is our monthly seminar series, which is super exciting, and it's kind of modeled after Tea with the Economist, which uh, is personally my favorite video cast. And uh, having a beverage seems to remove a layer of formality, which I'm a big fan of. So the way the format is going to work, uh, our speaker today, Jacob, Dr. Jacob Hackmisra, will be uh, talking for 20 minutes, and then the floor will open for a discussion on the topic for another 20, 25 minutes. So the beverage I want to introduce you guys to uh, this week is actually a cider. It's a hard black cherry cider from Red Barn. Uh, it's a brewery that's uh, here in Sunnyvale, where I live, and it has a whopping staff of three people, three employees. And uh, they don't use any sugar, it's all local honey that they use. So it's a very mom-and-pop shop. Um, it's, you can find it, if you live in California, at all the BevMo's. If you're out of California, I think you can find it at Whole Foods. And it is the best cider, period, I've ever tried. What's the name again? So it's yeah. the... Red Barn Cider. It was $5.99. It's really high-end and it's very, very yummy. Now I need to make point out that you need to be above 21 to drink this. And uh, if you do drink it, um, please sure to drink it uh, responsibly. Okay. Thanks for um, the Yes, yes, yes. Um, so it is my great pleasure to introduce our speaker today is Dr. J Jacob Hack-Misra. He uh, has a, uh, an undergraduate in both astrophysics and computer science and a PhD in meteorology and astrobiology from the Pennsylvania State University. And he's currently a postdoctoral scholar at the Rock Ethics Institute. He's also the author of the very good book called Planetary Messenger, which uh, brings together science and religion, which I a topic I really uh, enjoy thinking about. And it's very well written, and he's also a semi-professional percussionist, so mm -hmm. uh, all-around baller. Uh, that, that was quite an introduction for an informal uh, <laughs> little seminar here. Yes, so. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, no, you're welcome. But, you're but, welcome. Uh, but his yes, talk... Uh, oh, sorry, what? I was going to tell the title, which is... Uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Sustain <laughs> sustainability, Galactic Colonization, and uh, Extraterrestrial Ethics. Take it away, that's, Jacob. That's right, and and I have a little handout here. I just put in the uh, in the chat box um, that we can link to as well. Uh, I like the idea of not having words to distract you or charts to distract you, but it's still nice to have a picture to look at. So um, I'll talk about the pictures in a minute. Um, first of all, feel free to interrupt with any questions. It's pretty informal, right? Um, but I think part of the the reason we talked about doing this was just to you know, sort of build the Blue Marble Space uh, Institute of Science community a little bit. Figured it's important to talk about the research we're all doing and, and to be aware of that and, and so forth. So the stuff I'm going to talk about today is some work that I've done with Seth Baum and Sean Domical Goldman's been a part of this and a lot of other people have contributed in various ways. But it's sort of thinking about extraterrestrial life 
and thinking about the Fermi paradox, the fact that we've not observed extraterrestrial life, um, and maybe how what lessons does that sort of give us for perhaps how you know human civilization should should move forward and what are some things we should think about. Um, so this, this picture that I sent out, then on one hand there's a stone statue on the left side, and then there's a, um, and you might recognize this as Easter Island, and then on the right hand side there's a bird, and this is a, a kiwi bird, if you're, if you're not familiar with that. They, um, they're pretty big, a kiwi bird's probably about the size of a soccer ball or a little bigger, um, and they live in New Zealand. And so these are two examples from Earth that um, sort of highlight various uh, lessons in either sustainability or environmental ethics that we can sort of use as analogies as we think about extraterrestrial civilization. Um, so with that as a preamble, the way, the way I'll start is talk about um, so the stone statues, Easter Island, and this is a story you may have heard um, and there's a couple, actually, reasons people think about extraterrestrials. The first is that when uh, European explorers first set foot in this island, they, um, they weren't sure how some, such a primitive culture could have raised these enormous statues. They were you know, taller than people. They were, you know, very, very heavy. It was sort of the amazement when people saw Stonehenge. And what was even more amazing is this island was quite deserted. There was It was pretty much just grasslands, it wasn't very fertile, uh, very few trees at all, um, and a very, very small population that was, you know, largely impoverished. And so, you know, this was a big mystery, and some people thought, you know, this is evidence of alien visitation, and uh, Eric von Deineken um, has this theory that the ancients were visited by, by aliens, and this is one of the things that he writes about in his book. There's a whole chapter about Easter Island and the mystery and how clearly this is evidence of, uh, of extraterrestrials helping humans build things. But um, Jared Diamond does actually a really good job of explaining uh, what happened on Easter Island as sort of an ecological catastrophe. And so the first mistake is that no one actually went and asked the natives, how did your ancestors build these statues? <laughs> Uh, which would have been a good idea to do. They just assumed that these are primitive people, they don't know how to do this, must be aliens. But when the anthropologist actually asked the natives, how did your ancestors do that? Oh, sure, here, we'll show you how. Um, and it, it turns out it's an exercise in patience. Uh, it, it's really that if you want to do this the way modern people would do it, you, you need a big crane and some bulldozers. But, you know, when... You know, you, maybe the lesson is don't underestimate the power of boredom, where you know you're willing to spend you know days on end to slowly raise a piece of rock using logs and, and sand and pebbles, and you know you can do this. And and there are people who do this for fun today, just to demonstrate it can be done. Um, but so that's lesson number one. But more importantly, these statues are everywhere on one side of the island, and. It's very obvious that the rock needed to be mined in one portion of the island and then carried, you know, to the site where the statues were built, and this still had to require a lot of work and energy. Um, what seems to have happened with Easter Island is that the colonists who landed there, the Polynesian uh, colonists, um, seemed to have grown too quickly and seemed to have consumed their resources at a rate faster than the ecosystem could replenish. And so there actually were, uh, it was quite a forested island, it seems, when they landed there, 
and they just had a very rich culture. They ended up cutting down most of the trees faster than the trees could grow back. Um, so they were, you know, able to support, you know, this big mining um, endeavors to build these statues and have arts and culture and, and, you know, pretty thriving civilization. And then once they reached a certain critical point where they had their rate of resource consumption uh, exceeded the rate of replenishment in their, on the island, uh, then they were forced into a state of collapse where they could no longer meet the demands of their civilization. Um, and so now you're left with today, Easter Island is this rather deserted island where only a small number of humans can be uh, supported. And so when you see the, the statues of Easter Island, it's sort of a legacy of a civilization that, that had a really high point, a, it was really thriving, um, but they, they were living above the carrying capacity of their environment and could not indefinitely sustain a certain style of life. And so that in and of itself is a lesson for our own civilization that, you know, as a global society, we do need to think about our levels of consumption and, you know, can we sustain these levels of consumption for indefinite periods of time? But what this also makes me think of, and this is something that Seth and I then we call the sustainability solution to the Fermi paradox. And this is the idea that, um, well, perhaps exponential expansion, just like on Easter Island, exponential expansion uh, seems to reach a critical limit when you, when you have nowhere else to go and you're using up all your resources. Well, perhaps there's such a limit on a galactic scale as well. And so the Fermi paradox is, is it's, it's named by for physicist Enrico Fermi, who he basically postulated, look, if you're a little more advanced than Earth, you could very easily colonize another star in rel you know relatively short time. And if each of those colonists sent out colonists, you could basically colonize the entire galaxy in just a fraction of the age of the galaxy. So if that's possible, we should have seen extraterrestrial civilization by now. And some people say, because we don't, that means maybe there are none. So, so Seth and I, we, we, we address this question with our sustainability solution. We say perhaps exponential growth is unsustainable for intelligent civilizations. And so maybe if you do get off of a planet, say Earth, and colonize the whole solar system, and then all the nearby stars, and you rapidly colonize the entire galaxy, well, maybe you also reach a critical threshold like on Easter Island, where you're actually consuming more than your environment is able to replenish. And so even a galactic-scale civilization could collapse uh, due to the fact that it grew faster than its carrying capacity did. And so then the corollary is, of course, there could be intelligent civilizations out there. They just have to grow slower than that. And, um, you know, this is not a brand new idea that we've done. Carl Sagan and others were aware of some of these ideas, and, and uh, they've been interested in, in calculating what are sustainable rates of growth for civilizations. That's really hard to do, um, you know. But, but the, the bottom line is perhaps the idea of this galactic civilization is, is maybe not sustainable. It's maybe possible, but it would be short-lived. And so if that ever occurred, we might only see statues like on Easter Island where there's just perhaps graveyard artifacts of some sort of, you know, what was once a galactic empire, but now, um, you know, is forced into collapse, either total extinction or maybe just 
um, scattered on planets where they are, they're unable to uh, colonize space further. Um, so, so that's certainly another way of looking at the lesson, and maybe the bumper sticker motto you can take away from that is, is you know, turn off the lights because we haven't found aliens yet. And maybe, <laughs> maybe the challenge lies with us. Um, if, if space colonization has not occurred yet in a sustainable way, that it's existed, that it's present on a, on a, on a long time scales in the galaxy, uh, maybe that'll be us. And so maybe we need to, to uh, meet those challenges ourselves. Uh, so as... You know, I like people. I think we should go on living for a while. I think it'd be great. Uh, <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> so, so that's the Easter Island side of the story. And then, you know, just to sort of look at, at this idea of extraterrestrials, perhaps from a, a slightly different perspective, I have the Kiwi Bird, which, which is kind of an interesting, um, it's an interesting story in evolutionary ecology. So the island of New Zealand was basically uninhabited, well, by people until about a thousand years ago. So the natives, uh, the Maori, that live there have only been there for, you know, I think it's the year 1200 or so, you know, but, you know, not more than a thousand years. Uh, but not only was it undisturbed by people, it was undisturbed by a lot of biology. And so this bird that's, you know, like soccer ball or bigger sized, um, it's a, basically a flightless bird uh, they walk around to get around because they had no predators on this island. It was basically the largest creatures on New Zealand were kiwi birds and I think some seagulls. Mm. And uh, they, so they are, they're, they're, they're furry birds in a way. They have feathers, but the feathers are almost like fur, and they have a lot of mammal-like qualities. So even though they descend from birds, it's, they're sort of a, almost a bird-mammal hybrid, and they walk around, and so what happened was the Maori got there, and there's all these kiwi birds everywhere walking around, very easy targets. The Maori like their feathers, so the, 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 Maori, the kiwi feather became the symbol of the Maori tribe, and, and actually New Zealanders today will refer to themselves very proudly as kiwis. That's, that's a, sort of like a national symbol. Um, and, and you know they're various. I, at first, I thought it was sort of an insulting term, but they, they'll call themselves kiwis. It's just they <laughs> refer to themselves by the name of this bird, which is native to their island. Um, but so the Maori hunted them mostly for the feathers, and then the chiefs, the chieftains, would have these big kiwi feather headdresses. Um, and then the the English came and other immigrants, and they brought dogs and cats and wolves. And the slow walking kiwi birds are really good prey for dogs and wolves and cats. And the eggs got eaten by you know rabbits and everything. And the whole ecosystem of New Zealand has been changed. It's like England. There's English grass and English trees. Everything's been imported. It's 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 a nice place, but it's certainly nothing like what it was a thousand years ago. Um, you probably heard there's more sheep than um, than people on New Zealand, which is true. But the sheep, of course, are not native to New Zealand. They're all imported sheep. <laughs> um, so the kiwi bird now is currently endangered. There are kiwi um, bird, you know, sort of um, breeding centers where they, you know, try to capture them and give them nice environments. And uh, there's actually a couple islands, like mini islands, in within New Zealand's borders that are kept off-limits only for kiwi bird restoration so that they can have, like, a natural environment that's free of predators to, you know, gain a foothold again. So there, there are people that are trying to do this, but um, 
you know, there certainly have been a lot of problems in New Zealand with introducing species, and I think there's a big possum problem now, and the possums eat the, the kiwi bird, bird eggs. Um, but so the, the reason I'm bringing up the kiwi bird in relation to extraterrestrial life is, um, you know, the other, the other thing that comes up a lot is what if we do meet extraterrestrials? Is this a good or bad thing? And, and Stephen Hawking uh, recently said, like, no, we shouldn't try to make contact with extraterrestrials. They'll come and destroy us. And even if they don't come and destroy us, uh, it could be like when, you know, Western culture comes into contact with Stone Age culture and it'll cause a moral, cultural collapse that our civilization will never recover from because, you know, they might be so powerful, they're like gods to us and we crumble, you know, before, you know, all that we don't know. And this is certainly possible and, and there is historical precedent for cultural collapse with contact on Earth. But I thought the kiwi bird is maybe a different example we can use for what happens when, you know, different cultures and different forms of life come into contact with one another. And um, this is, again, based on a paper that Seth and myself and Sean Dominical Goldman wrote. And this got a bit of press because, you know, partly because it involved the scenario with uh, aliens noticing global warming and then partly because Sean had uh, NASA as his affiliation. So... Um, there was a lot of that, but it's still, the paper itself is a scenario analysis of ways in which contact with extraterrestrials could proceed. We group, you know, dozens and dozens of scenarios into beneficial, neutral, and harmful categories and sort of analyze possible outcomes of scenarios and reasons we might, you know, get into scenarios without saying which of these are likely. That's really hard. We don't know. Um, but at least there's a range of possibilities, not just harmful, and that was sort of the point. Um, but what we can we can think of is, so a beneficial, well, so the harmful, that's, that's the one that people go to the most, and that's the one that, that makes headlines. So aliens come and eat us. I mean, sure, these are all possible, but if you think about it, if you're going to build a whole starship and travel for generations from one star to another... You know, you had to have enough food to make the journey, so probably, like, you don't need humans for the nutrition. Um, and you've probably figured out this problem. If you can build an interstellar spaceship, you probably have resources. Unless you just need more resources, you know, perhaps they need Earth for the, the minerals, but then Mars is there, too. So some of these ideas seem less likely to me, although they're plausible. Um, but then again, they might come here and say humans are neat, you know, they can do things like, you know, one of Carl Sagan's friends mentioned that, um, you know, we keep seals in captivity because they balance balls on their noses, and so maybe they'll, we'll amuse the, our alien captors somehow through some trick we have, and, and that's the reason they capture us. But, I mean, these are things you can speculate about. We don't know, and they don't seem all that reasonable for a strong reason to come all the way to another star just because you wanted a new pet. I mean, maybe, but it seems, seems unlikely to me. Um, but one way they could harm us, so there's the idea that, um, you know, what happened in New Zealand was another species landed on the island, and so there was, so that was, I guess, you know, the seal balancing on, the, the ball on the nose of the seal, where the Maori noticed the feathers of the bird, and the, they think they're really nice. So, so in, in some way, you know, that that happened in New Zealand, but uh, the kiwi bird also got displaced. It just got outcompeted, and um, 
perhaps some sort of contact with extraterrestrials, whether it causes a cultural collapse, it could cause some sort of ecological collapse. Um, not necessarily that you know it's a macroscopic creature. It could be uh, extraterrestrial microbes could significantly disrupt um, Earth ecosystems if we make contact with with extraterrestrials. Uh, so that sort of um, that, that's possible as well. Um, and that might be more of an unintentional harm. We might meet extraterrestrials that are in fact peaceful, but but their microbes uh, have negative effects on our biosphere. So you know these are possible. But then on on the uh, beneficial side of things, I think the lesson from the kiwi bird is that at least some of the captors have taken an interest in restoration of the kiwi bird. And um, one of the things I think that's that we often assume about extraterrestrials is that they're homogenous. That if we meet a crew of aliens, they're all going to be one-minded and of one nation, and and sort of have you know one goal in mind for their intergalactic federation interest. You know, and and perhaps you know we don't have this unity on Earth. It might be nice to you know we, we our blue marble space promoting international unity um, through space exploration, but. Uh, we're not there yet, and there's no reason to assume that um, there wouldn't be heterogeneity among extraterrestrials. So um, perhaps while there may be some that land here and maybe do want to use Earth for its resources, uh, there might be others who have you know human interest in mind, and just the way that, that some humans are interested in New Zealand for its resources, uh, perhaps, you know, well, clearly other humans are interested in protecting the integrity of the kiwi bird and allowing them to um, at least have some of that life. So those are just a couple of the types of scenarios that we discuss in the paper. You know, there's others, and then there's some that are more Hollywood, some that are more realistic, and then, of course, um, a lot of which involve um, contact using radio signals, which is perhaps the most likely. Um, but these things do get attention in, in the press, and, and it's, they are fun to think about. Um, but I do think that uh, these harmful scenarios where aliens come and attack us and eat us, is, I, I think there are cases to be made against that, and even though those are what garner attention. Um, I think if we really think about it, there's, there's probably a much richer possibility, and for me that means I don't think we should have a moratorium on, on searching at least, and we should certainly think about broadcasting, because I, I think contact with extraterrestrials would be... Um, Probably one of the most, the biggest breakthroughs in history. So, um, I think we should go for it. No, I agree. I think it, contacting the extraterrestrials would also add to this unity that suddenly we realize that being human is what is the most common pattern between all of us, given the knowledge that there are other types of civilizations out there. So that that might actually help us in terms of finding ways to unify the planet in a strange way. <laughs> I think so. There was, I can't remember his name, a recent, a famous scientist that recently um, suggested that, you know, it would almost behoove us to stage an extraterrestrial invasion to get us out of our economic slump. Um, <laughs> because it would promote international unity and it would spurn industry for, you know, defense and, and knowledge purposes. And, you know, of course, you can't do that, but it's it certainly, I think you're right. Um, once there's an other, you know, then we become earthlings more so. Mm -hmm. I, know, I could argue the other way too. I think it's like either if you know you're not alone or you know you are alone, then you have to like really feel special as a person. 
Because if we knew we were completely not alone, then I think we might have more responsibility as an intelligent civilization being the only one in the universe. Oh, absolutely. If we are guardian of the intelligent species for the galaxy, huh? then... Uh, <laughs> then uh, that's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, that's but, a lot. That's, I, I'm not even entirely convinced our species can handle such a responsibility. <laughs> I know. I'm not either. But like, I, like, to me, that's more overwhelming. But is that being said for centuries anyway, that we, like, you know, based on, of course, many religions, that that's what they teach too, that humans, human beings are special, we are created, we are, you know, we are sent here, we are here for a reason, so, and... Yeah, they still have, Ill, like, that, like they're... That really seem to work so Yeah, far. but I think, like, like, gods and angels and stuff are equivalent, like, mythos to an alien mythos, it's something other than us that's an intelligent being. So they're not really assuming they're alone in the universe. I don't think that there's any culture that really thinks that they're fundamentally alone. Yeah, well, that's true. I had actually a question to, um, not a question really, but a thought um, for the, especially the first part. Um, but you mentioned that for the, the, the sustainability of the universe, that it is coming to, to an end. And it sounded like too much pessimistic to me. Maybe I didn't, you know, understand it fundamentally, but I mean, it's like even in the Jurassic Park that it says life finds a way, that's the Jurassic Park model. So even if like we do end up consuming everything, then then the struggle will move on in order to, you know, find a way to to move on and to survive under those conditions. So then the, it will rise back up again. So I felt like the story ended right in, at the bottom of that, you know, cycle. Well, I do think that life will continue. I think that's pretty clear. I think life always finds a way to persist. Um, but the question is for us, you know, does the technological civilization persist? And if we reach a resource, a resource threshold, um, I, think, I don't think that would halt life, um, but it might halt the progress of, of a technological civilization. Sort of the way Easter Island, there's still life, and there's still abundant life there, but it's different and it doesn't, it no longer supports the construction of giant monolithic statues. Um, so that's the sort of thing we might lose if a society grows too quickly on a galactic scale. But I do think if we make the right decisions, we could exist on a galactic scale for a really long time. I think it's all about how fast or how slow we choose to grow. On that note, Jacob, why does when a civilization overrun its resources collapses sort of completely, won't like the quantity of members in that civilization decrease until there's a steady state that's reached? I mean, why does it completely collapse? Well, you can. And so there are ways to transition out of this. And, you know, we're arguably above carrying capacity already. Right. Um, but just, you know, you can sustain yourself above carrying capacity for some amount of time. So on Easter Island, they didn't go to extinction. The, the natives there are descendants of the original colonists. So they collapsed um, to some small number, but that's because the, um, they were consuming, the rate of consumption was such that, um, you know, they, I don't know how the story of Easter Island, how they adjusted once they realized, you know, we don't have any more trees to cut down. So that's sort of, um, I guess, what's your emergency plan once... Once your population is forced to shrink, how does it do so? I could imagine in some cases that leads to violence, and then you have actually a bigger decrease in population, maybe because of that. 
Um, but you don't have to do that. You could you could make a conscious decision that you know realizing that resources are changing in availability and then slowly transition towards a slower growing society. And this is in fact you know what what Carl Sagan and others uh, thought about. They they certainly realized this is true for population that population can't grow exponentially. It has to level off. Um, but I think, I think they realized the same thing was true resources. They just weren't thinking about it that way. Um, but, but certainly uh, the collapse can be as severe or as, um, as uh, recoverable as I think this, the civilization wants it to be, or at least they have some control over that. The problem is capitalism, which is sort of how I, our world is run, is that you're not going to decrease while you can still make money, right? Mm -hmm. So there needs to be some kind of conscious decision to have long-term long -term goals financially and decrease the consumption. And I, for some reason, don't think that's going to happen. I mean, there, well, there, seems to be, there needs to be a catastrophe to happen, and well, then there'll be an adjustment. Unfortunately, you might be right about that. Um, I mean, you can make money off of ideas nowadays. You know, We have intellectual property, which you're basically inventing things that... that can you know occupy very little resources? So, I mean, maybe right. in some okay. sense we can we can decrease our reliance on physical resources, but still have some sort of information economy. Perhaps, maybe. Perhaps. Yeah. But you might be right. We might we have a lot of people on this planet. We have too many, so something does need to happen. Um. So I had like. I was just actually thinking sort of similarly to Batu about the fact that this is an island, right? So I think the thing that's major, like if you're talking about Easter Island, the major thing that actually led to collapse of their civilization was that they couldn't go anywhere. So I was wondering like if in that, because you were talking about sustainability in terms of like planetary exploration, but do you think that there's like a critical phase where either you expand beyond your initial planet or you out, you basically strip your, your home planet of all its resources and your civilization collapse, like you need to get out before that happens, or could you make those arguments? Well, I do think that, um, I mean, yeah, if, as long as you're growing at a rate where you can, you're using your resources faster than they replenish, then, yeah, I think you do have to go to other planets. And I think perhaps, you know, maybe just my, my guess, you know, not based on any really thorough analysis, but my guess would be that maybe the limit... Uh, is the solar system that a civilization expands, you know, exponentially before they collapse. Like, mm. maybe, you, maybe you can get off your planet, but the distance between stars is so it's great that, you know, to travel from one star to another, you need what's called a world ship. You know, that's about 200-some mm. people that are basically a tribe, and, and they, you know, interbreed and have, you know children and, and, you know, maintain constant numbers because you're on a spaceship. That's, that's even worse than an island. Um, mm -hmm. so, is, is 200 really the minimum? I thought it would have to be more than 1,000 to prevent, like, genetic Well, so, yeah, you know, what, what you might have is, like, a fleet of four or five ships of, of two or 300 all, oh, you know, in a fleet. And maybe every so generations, you know, a few people transfer from one ship to the other for, you know, genetic purposes. Um, so yeah, yeah, you, you probably want to, you know that size of a population, um, but uh, at that stage you do have to, I think, have solved some of these long-term sustainability issues. But yeah. yeah, maybe you actually can grow exponentially out to you know 
using Mars and, and the asteroid belt and maybe even beyond to, you know, Jovian moons and Kuiper belt objects. Um, but at some point, I think the point of a sustainability solution is even if you get to the whole scale of an entire galaxy, you know, the, we no longer believe the universe to be infinite. So, so the distance between galaxies is really far. So one thing that I'm thinking about a little bit now is, can you colonize one galaxy from another? And the answer may be no. Well, yeah. it, it all depends on the technology leaps, right? I mean, colonizing the world before the invention of the caravel was unthinkable. It required there's certainly, there's certainly that, but there's interesting questions that come up when, I mean, even for galactic colonization, your timescales for travel start to approach evolutionary timescales. And so, you know, for example, a biological species that colonizes the galaxy is going to show, like, much more cultural di drift than the difference between Americans and Chinese. It'll be like the difference between Neanderthals and chimpanzees, in a way. Yeah. That's assuming um, that's assuming you're limited by light speed, which perhaps is not no longer yes, a limit. Yes, yes, <laughs> we are assuming certain <laughs> Yes, and, and we shouldn't. Yes, imaginations. Uh, yeah, should should be allowed to speculate here. It's kind of interesting because you almost have a trade-off between like the sustainability and the technology development because you need to get to a certain point to have the technology to be mobile enough to get more resources, which means maybe you need to be unsustainable at least for a period of time to get that rapid growth. Or do you think that technology development is not correlated with sustainability? No, no, you're right. and that's That's been suggested and that's unknown because we only have one technological civilization we've observed mm -hmm. so far. Um, so yeah, the question is, do you need to go through this exponential growth period to get space colonization? Mm -hmm. Or if you gave, you know, like if you gave the Bushmen of the Kalahari, you know, infinite time, <laughs> would they eventually reach the moon? It's, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think the answer is no, but I can't prove that it's yes either. I feel like there, there needs to be some impetus for a technological spurt to occur, like some kind of danger that's imminent that requires um, just the imagination of the mind to go in overgear, overdrive and develop something like you mean like war or something like that well or, or like the moon program in the 60s right I mean it was done in 10 years yeah I mean, that's and if it was not for this incentive I don't think we would be on the moon today I mean, so that's interesting Sanjoy, because I, I, I think I agree with you um, but a lot of uh, the discussion, especially in Carl Sagan's day, which was in the middle of the Cold War, you know, it was all about the curious animal and the exploratory animal and how humans are this curious creature that, you know, will set forth into the cosmos. And, and um, yeah, a lot of our developments have really been more driven. Yeah, so I, I don't think if you just gave infinite time to the aboriginals, for example, they would go to the moon. I, they have no reason to go, so I don't think they will. <laughs> personal, that's, I don't know, that's a personal opinion. But I think you definitely need some kind of impetus, some kind of motivation that drives innovation. If you can get all your food and be comfortable with a spear, then why develop more? But then war is good to some extent, right? Unfortunately. Or at least intercultural uh, communication and contact, maybe, is good for development. Yeah, that's a cold war. We wouldn't have gotten to the moon if there weren't actual like arms races going on. 
But that's an unsettling thought. That is mean. a very unsettling thought. I don't like yes. that. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I used to do that. You would think the main you know, drive behind all these discoveries is actually human curiosity. But the reality is no, just humans throwing off to each other. <laughs> My goodness. That's why maybe it's, it's fearful to other people to think that anything coming from the space may be that because that's our intention too. Mm. Well, I'm sure that I have a cider right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, Andre, I, I do think that there's a chance that the aboriginals could get to the moon given a long enough time. Yeah, I think really? We, okay. I think we interfered with that. I, I think, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so to make like a, a knife, you know, a, like a, a steel knife is quite energy intensive. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, that technology has developed in in a lot of these more primitive societies, but it just develops at a different rate than we use steel. And so I just wonder, I, 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 I'm not ruling it out that a slower growing civilization could stumble across the same basic scientific and industrial principles as us, just at a slower scale, and maybe that means they adapt to them you know, better, because you know they have thousands of years to perfect steel and have it not destroy their society and then they don't get into a situation where they develop a bomb and then don't know what to do with it. So I don't think it's inevitable, but I think it's possible. I mean, do you so, have examples? Like, yeah, I mean, there are, there are populations, for example, in the Amazon forest or in Papua New Guinea who have not had contact with, quote-unquote, the Western world, the modern world. Right. And... Presumably, you can t give the argument that they've had all the time in the world to evolve, but have evolved technologically. I mean, they are, they are no, obviously they are. as they're smart as, as we are, but they just haven't had the need to... Yeah, but they're doing it. I don't, I don't think any population is evolutionary sta evolutionarily stagnant. No, that's, um, that's a good point. That's true. And then they might need pressures to exert, but all I'm saying is if you took away all of Western civilization and left them in their jungle and then came back in a million years, I mean, they'd be different, and they'd probably have more technology. I'll give you that. That's true. And, and, and saying it, maybe under some circumstances, that would lead to, to space travel. Yeah. yeah. No, I'll give you that. And, you know, that might be like 100 million years, in, you know, for a, a, a civilization like that. You know, it might be really slow growth. But, you know, I, I, I think, I don't, just like light speed, you know, I don't want to rule that out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess in, in such a long time frame, then we take it. We must take into account the the change in perhaps the, the solar luminosity, which might create pressures to adapt to new environments, and perhaps that's how technology grows in the long term as well. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's all possible. Right. So yeah, it's trying to because how how this technological advanced thing is also all relative. Like we can't just think that we are more advanced than Aborigines, but who are we comparing us with? You know, it took human beings us a hundred billion years to finally make it to the moon. Yeah. That's pretty long. I mean you know? I think it's completely <laughs> wrong to claim that we are smarter than the ancient Egyptians or yeah. you know, For no sure. way. We just have just different means. We have more knowledge built up over time. Like that's the whole artifact of cultural evolution. Uh, even that, like I'm not sure we would be able to recreate a pyramid today. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, we've reached our uh, our uh, allotted time slot. Um, well, that was a good discussion. Yeah, it was very very interesting. Thank you so much.
Thank you all for coming. Jacob, thanks for a very, very interesting talk. Uh, we're going to meet again in a month, so that's going to be November 3rd. I'll uh, present a beverage and Sanjo will present a talk. Yes, I don't know what yet, but... Um, <laughs> you should mail out the beverage ahead of time so we can all drink it during the talk. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, uh... All right, I'll do that. Then it won't be a surprise, but... Well, Sarah, what time zone are you at? I'm 11 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. It's 5 o'clock somewhere. It's 5 o'clock. Right. Hey, who doesn't love beer for breakfast? Uh -huh. <laughs> but only if you're 21 and you drink it responsibly. I just thought it would be fun, but it's a, you don't have to. <laughs> okay. Great. Well, thank you so much, everybody. This was Thanks a lot. Wonderful. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives. <laughs>